Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, everybody, welcome back again to the podcast. I am excited to have John Slade join me again, and I am looking forward to this discussion. John's been in the air quality industry for 50 years, and before his most recent 15 years, being a colleague of mine at all four, he spent about the same amount of time as the chief of Pennsylvania DEP's Bureau of Air Quality. And I mentioned that specific part of his experience because it uniquely qualifies John for the topic today. And that's going to be discussing how changing national ambient air quality standards impact both state agencies in terms of what they need to do and also industrial facilities and the responsibilities that each of those two stakeholders have in the NACS designation process. I think this topic has a little bit of a, of a lost art among folks that are on the industrial side of the stakeholder equation. So it's an important and timely topic. John, I want to start by looking at state agencies and what they do, and then perhaps we can sort of weave some of the facility perspective into that. And I, some of our listeners may be thinking, if I do permitting at an industrial facility, why are we focusing on responsibilities of a state agency? But I can assure you, and I think what you'll hear from John, is that understanding the steps that a regulatory agency needs to take is going to position stakeholders at the facility level in the best way possible to be able to do permitting and to be able to see where they can actually get involved and maybe assist in the process with the agency. So I think this understanding, this foundational understanding is really important. So John, I want to get sort of start, like I said, from the from the state agency perspective, and let's look at an existing ambient standard. Let's say we've got a state that's 100% in attainment with that standard. So you hear that term come up a lot today, attainment and non-attainment. And let's say that standard gets tightened. It gets tightened, it gets lowered, and we're going to see this for ozone coming up in certain areas. John, can you walk us through, and maybe we'll dig into these a little bit. I know you're going to keep it high level. Maybe we'll dig into one or two. But what are the basic steps that an agency has to take? A new lowered standard gets introduced what does a state have to do? What does an agency have to start with? And how much time do they have to do it? Loaded question to start, but then it could serve as a basis for the rest of our conversation. Sure. Well, when when a standard gets changed, lowered, as you postulated there, I mean, there's, I'll say there's immediate things that need to be done. There isn't necessarily an immediate change in the impact. Um, the first thing that happens is that a state and EPA have to go through a uh, data analysis and determine whether an area is in attainment or not in attainment with that new standard. And ozone, you mentioned ozone. Like ozone is a standard based on the fourth high monitored value over a three-year period. And so the first thing that, that the state has to do is collect together all their data. Uh, they've been sending it to EPA, but 
But in, in this instance, it's important because it has to go through what's called a clean data analysis. And that may sound simple, <laughs> but it's not because monitors fail, their days are missed monitoring. Um, you can have unusual events such as forest fires in Canada cause some non-attainment monitoring in the Northeast United States a number of years back. And so there's a process. It doesn't automatically get eliminated as a process and EPA eliminated some sites as being unusual events and some other sites they didn't, uh, that states had tried to argue they were impacted by these. So it, so that's a process in and of itself. So, and then once uh, EPA and the states have what's considered a clean, a clean data analysis, then if, if it's determined that an area is non-attainment, EPA has to propose that. The state gets a chance to, to submit their comments as to whether they agree or disagree with that. So there's a whole public, there's a whole, there's a whole process. And I'd say it's not unusual for it to take, you know, two years before a designation actually happens uh, for an area. But, you know, once, once an area is designated as, as non-attainment, uh, then, then the state has to develop their plan uh, for submittal to EPA to bring the area back into attainment. And they're given a certain amount of time to do that. They're also, depending upon the standard and the severity of it for ozone, there could be moderate, uh, severe, uh, serious and extreme, depending upon what's determined for your area you're given different amounts of time to bring the area into attainment. Uh, you have to submit a maintenance plan. In between time, you have to submit reasonable further progress to show that you are starting to, to attain. And that process uh, most typically involves developing additional regulations that are going to bring uh, the emissions from your point sources down. Now, it's also important to understand point sources, companies aren't the only sources of, of air pollution, um, but they're the ones that are under the agency's controls. EPA controls the mobile sources, the cars, uh, standards, except California. Uh, then you have area sources, and they can be impacted by some of the state uh, agencies' regulations, such as fuel standards. Uh, and, and things like that. And then you have natural background uh, emissions and all, all of those come into play. There's no, you know, when, uh, when you're measuring the air, the air in an area, it doesn't really care where it comes from. But as I said, I mean, state agencies most uh, have their control over the, the point sources or, or the industrial sources. And even if you're not a major source, major sources, and we'll talk about that, and they're the ones that have the, have the most significant impact. But even if you're not a major source, in developing control plans, the state agencies may develop regulations that impact the sources, and it's typically source categories. They may tighten down boiler standards, um, you know, NOx emission levels in, in certain categories, and, and those don't necessarily just break for the major sources. You know, they can impact even non-major sources with, with uh, lower emission standards and, and regulations that apply to them. So 
you know, there, there's a whole cascading uh, events, but ultimately non-attainment areas mean additional regulations on companies and for major sources. If you're now subject to non-attainment new source review permitting, there's a whole host of additional requirements that are pretty impactful on you. John, I think there's, I heard two big buckets there of this example of a standard that gets lowered. The first bucket is the sort of the collection of the data that then goes into the attainment versus non-attainment decision. And then the second sort of category was all the steps that then proceed from, and we used a non-attainment example, but all the steps that proceed from that decision. So I want to go back to the first category, I think, and ask you a little bit about that data. So I guess I have two broad questions on it. The first one, let's just take them one at a time. How does it typically work with the data that gets used to make that decision? Is it typically the most, and I, I'm sure there's different, you know, some different things that go on for different standards, certainly, depending on their averaging times. But in what you've seen in the past, is it typically the most recent available sort of full set of data that gets used to make that decision? And I think where I get a little bit confused sometimes is I recall situations where we're actually looking at ozone data and saying, boy, how is this summer going to be? Is this summer going to be a scorcher? And is it going to be a high ozone summer? And, but I think that's really as rules are – I actually think that's during the – the uh, next proposal process. So we're thinking ahead a little bit to when the, the lowered standard is going to be finalized and how the data is going to look. But how does that typically work? What's the what's the period of data that gets used? And then who from the agency is involved? Like what group in the agency is typically involved in that process of pulling it together? Okay. I'll answer your last question first. The, your, the states always deal with the regions. Uh, the EPA regional offices. Yep. Now, the regions only have, you know, they, they get their standard set of of rules of how to proceed from headquarters. But, you know, they do have a little bit of flexibility in working with, uh, with the state agencies. And, and here's one example on that. I mean, they always use, depending upon the standard and what the averaging period and all that is, they do need to use the most recent yep. data. But in like in the case of ozone, and this this uh, certainly what you talked about, where where there's concern, oh, you know, we're concerned how this summer's data is going to come through on ozone. Uh, if if a state knows that they're they're close to a standard, and a bad summer may throw them in. Um, likewise, you know, uh, they might have three previous years might have been out, and this summer's data might be looking better. And it may be, it, it may be, um, maybe we'll keep them from being non-attainment. And EPA, depending upon when all this gets promulgated and all, I've seen instances where data was in EPA knew now an area that would have been non-attainment. Now they have one additional year of good, clean data. They're, you know, if everything's good, they won't be designated as non-attainment. And so EPA will sometimes wait um, if, if they see data that could be changed the status, quite honestly, one way or the other. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and so they, they will 
take a little longer in their proposal and their comments and, and all that, you know, to allow a little more time. But it but it's the most recent clean data available. And that's why clean data is important because if you have some really bad monitoring data, you know, if you're if you're missing too much data, the most recent three years might actually be years four, three, two, two, you know, maybe the most recent year you can't use because you've, I mean, it's unusual, but, but you've, but you've had such lack of good data at that site that it, that it may not be able to be used. And so EPA would use the three most available years that have clean data available to them. That makes sense. And I, it, it, it sort of makes sense that sometimes there is a little bit of that moving target, right? Of like, hey, we've got new right. data coming up that may shift this thing. So once again, I think from a facility perspective, being able to keep track of all that and be plugged in with the agency and at least hearing from them about how that might go, that helps to to plan ahead. John, you mentioned back to the first category, staying in that lane of the data. And you mentioned this, it's sort of a time-consuming effort to get a good, clean set of data that's going to serve as the basis for the standard. But you, you sort of mentioned that there are some things that come up that might that might influence the monitor that we might want to exclude from the data and uh, certain events. And I know there's exceptional event policies, guidelines, perhaps even rules out there. I'm curious from your perspective in your time with the agency or maybe even since then, was there any particularly notable examples of where an exceptional event would have swayed a decision one way or the other, where there was a, an intricate process to take a look at that? Or is that just sort of a exceedingly rare thing? I was just curious how often that came up for you. Well, that, that, that wildfires in Canada was, was an event like that. And I do remember, and it, of course that was PM 2.5 yeah. um, was affected. And I do remember one, one uh, county monitor, one, one attainment area that it was sort of, it was going to be a, a make or break for them. And they were able to get the data excluded, but it was a lot longer process and more involved and involved back trajectory modeling and everything to, you know, to really prove that, that the monitor was indeed impacted by the, uh, by the, by the forestar, even though, you know, there were other monitors that, that, you know, uh, got excluded. You know, there were there were some I know that did not get excluded uh, from from that event. So you you know, the agencies do have to put a lot more effort, and it's not just a oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna exclude any data during that time period. So so yeah, it, it's definitely definitely uh, can impact in, impact the data, and and I've even seen instances when an area that's very close had a monitor with with some downtime with some with some issues mm -hmm. and you know the conservative way that EPA looks at data when you, when you have missing data can impact it and and could uh, and can th could throw that monitor into non-attainment because of because of missing data John, going to that second bucket now, we've got the state has put the data together. They've collected it. They've, you know, they've worked with EPA on it. And now let's let's use the example of a non-attainment situation, because that's where I think more things could happen that would be valuable for listeners to to hear. 
so the state agency at that at that point, once that designation is finalized, you mentioned they need to put a, a plan together for how they're going to go from non-attainment back to attainment. First question I have is um, who at the agency, and I know all the agencies are maybe set up a little bit different, but for someone listening that's with a, an industrial facility, I think this is valuable. Who at the agency is typically involved in that process of putting that plan together? Is it an next compliance planning group? Is it permitting folks because they've got knowledge of what might need to happen there from a stationary source perspective? Is it modelers? Is it everybody? Like what's what's the cast of characters look like there that people should be staying connected with and plugged into as they go about that process? So the, the answer to your question, Colin, is that uh, a lot of different groups at the state agencies are involved. The primary group is the planning. Typically, they call it the planning group. They're the ones responsible for the attainment, non-attainment status and planning <laughs> as it's uh, – planning for uh, what is necessary in order to either get an area into attainment or to main, maintain that area in attainment and, and to keep assessing that. But of course, when, they, when they're coming up with their plans for attaining, they have to talk to the permitting people, they have to talk to the regional staff, they gotta figure out what source categories they're gonna get the most reduction from, what, what can reasonably be additional controls can be put on source categories and all that. So, so the, there's quite a bit of involvement with, with different staff at the, at the agencies, but, but the planning group, the ones who, who have to make submittals for the state implementation plan, and that's the overall plan that covers regulations and everything. It's how, how an agency is uh, attaining and maintaining the ambient air quality standards. John, what are some of the so the, so they're putting this plan together, and you mentioned that there are, you know, there's different levers that they have to pull on to accomplish the transition from non-attainment to attainment, and you mentioned regulations and things like that that typically get put into place. What are some of the sort of typical regulations or type of regulations that you might see where then the facilities start to get involved? Because now there's something that they're working with the agency on and they need to comply with. Um, how does that typically, you know, what are some of those categories? For non-attainment areas, the, the agencies typically look at what EPA develops, what are called control technology guidance documents. And so if they have a non-attainment area, they will go look at what EPA has developed. So it could be additional vault organic compound reductions let's say from, uh, from surface coating operations, or they could be you know, printing operations where it's now been determined that a certain control technology such, such you know, as, as a carbon collection concentrators that are then, then controlled with a, a thermal oxidizer or a regenerative thermal oxidizer. You know, so the agencies will go look and see what CTG documents are out there and what and match those sort of up with what source categories they have, and, you know, to try to maximize if they're trying to get uh, for like ozone, they're looking at both reductions for nitrogen oxide and they're looking for reductions for volatile organic compounds. And that's why they have to involve everyone from permitting 
to uh, to the compliance staff to to assess you know what's out there and where they could actually get uh, emission reductions. And then and then of course you know the major sources uh, take a hit on on the, their control assessment for new or modified sources goes from instead of instead of demonstrating that they're meeting best available control technology, they now have to assess uh, lowest achievable emission reduction, which is if it's feasible to control it, the cost doesn't matter as opposed to BAT is, is it feasible? And then what's the cost? Uh, but the cost part gets, gets dropped for major sources that are in non-attainment areas. John, the the CTG component that you're mentioning, so I just want to make sure I'm clear on it and the listeners too. Most agencies have their state implementation plan regulations. They they have, you know, typically different source categories, like you said, combustion and printing and you know, all, all a whole variety of different source types. So when you're talking about that part, they're actually going through that list and saying, I assume what contributes the most to this next issue we're trying to solve and then where can we actually where can we actually get tighter within these existing regulations so presumably the the changes there could apply to any operation in those categories whether they're doing permitting or not is is that right is that sort of where that part fits in yeah exactly and, okay. and that that's where even non-major sources can get impacted by an area becoming non-attainment because the control technology guidance you know, that doesn't make a, a dividing line between major and minor, you know, minor sources. That that's a let's say a coding type operation, and those regulations that that go out there, if they're tighter, they would be both on the major sources and on the non non major sources. That'd be applied to the category, the source category. Uh, right. That, you know, that's that's being being controlled. So, so you know, this is where. You know, in the non-attainment, while it has the biggest impact on a major source because of the uh, new source review permitting or non-attainment new source review permitting, but even even minor sources can potentially get impacted by these uh, controlled technology guidance documents. And if the state determines that that's a source category, they can get a lot of emission reductions, then and they'll apply that, you know, across across the state. That was part one of my conversation with John on NACS designations and implications. I hope that you'll join us next time for part two. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.